Do you just like eat it? Yeah, just cut it open and like eat the stuff eat the inside. inside. There's like seeds and stuff. Hola. The sound you just heard was a machete in the hands of a young American woman who lives in the Panamanian jungle. She's doing an internship in the jungle, learning how to live off the land. The plant she was pruning, and I was subsequently trying to figure out how to eat, was passion fruit. It was as fresh as fresh gets. It was also the third or fourth thing someone had picked directly from nature and offered me to eat during my time in the wilderness. Exciting? Yes. Healthy? Yes. Sustainable? Maybe. Hi, Kiara Powell here, your guide to Padma. My classmate Alyssa Gregory was intrigued by the story of Kaluyala since she first came across it online. That was earlier in the semester, in the research phase of our class. I'm going to an off-the-grid sustainable community. Um, it's called Kaluyala, and it's about an hour from Panama City. I'm going to go out there for um, two days and just to see how they live. So their main purpose is to try and live off the land pretty much and it's off the grid. I haven't gotten all the logistics yet, but according to the lady who's been helping me uh, facilitate my project, I'll be staying in a tent. So I'm winging it, I don't really have much, so I'm just gonna use what they have as if I was just someone who packed their bag and went out there. They have plumbing, that's a plus, so it might not be that bad, we'll see. She said she's most excited about just getting to observe the whole operation. On its webpage, Kaluyala calls itself the world's most sustainable town. It was a remarkable claim for a primitive settlement in central Panama populated by interns and faculty of the Kaluyala Institute. The claim turned out to be a bit of an exaggeration. Not necessarily the sustainability part. But it's hard to imagine any travelers coming upon this community in the jungle and thinking they had reached a town. Then again, it would be pretty hard to just stumble across Kaluyala. We were looking for it and almost missed it. Though it's only 50 minutes from downtown Panama City, our initial travel plan had multiple parts to it. It went something like this. Alyssa and I, along with Katie, one of our professors, take a taxi from the hotel to the Kaluyala pickup point. Once there, we meet up with a 4x4 driver. He takes us over the mountain, directly into the valley. What could go wrong? When we asked the hotel concierge to call us a taxi, he was startled when we told him where we were headed. He told us that our pickup point was actually in one of the most dangerous places in Panama City, where crimes are frequently committed and visitors are not welcome. He assured us that it was particularly treacherous for women, and it was certainly not anywhere we would want to linger about waiting for our driver. As we stood in the lobby trying to figure out what to do, Tony, our main professor, repeatedly told Katie, pull the plug if you're not comfortable with this. What he said echoed his main concern for the trip, that we all get back safely. The stories came second to our well-being while abroad. But Alyssa didn't want to consider the option of abandoning her story. She felt that she couldn't do the story without actually going to Kaluyala. So, she made several calls to her contact in the valley. We finally decided on a new pickup point at a house in the small town of San Miguel. 
It's the last bit of civilization before venturing into jungle territory on the way to Kaluyawa. We also ditched the taxi idea for one of the hotel's drivers instead. He promised to be waiting for us there two days later when we'd get dropped off. We were feeling infinitely safer, but he took several wrong turns and stopped multiple times for directions before finally arriving at the drop-off point. We were happy to meet our 4x4 driver and make the trek up the mountain. What we thought would be a simple drive ended up feeling more like a roller coaster slash river raft ride. Starting out on a paved road that quickly morphed into red dirt, we dodged fallen trees, bounced over uneven rock beds, and even crashed through at least two river crossings. While Katie and I were relatively safe in the cab of the truck, Alyssa was in the truck bed with two other passengers, everyone's luggage, and her large JVC camera attempting to catch some footage of the ride into the valley. Right before finally reaching camp, we stopped under a canopy of trees to peer at a sloth hanging peacefully from some branches. That was definitely one of the most amazing moments of the trip. Later, we would find out that interns at Kaluyala, despite being there for seven weeks already, had yet to see a sloth, so we were lucky in that regard. Depending on how you look at things, we were also lucky in another. Although our ride into the valley was tumultuous, it was still a ride. Unlike us, all interns traveling to Kaluyala must hike over the mountain, no rides allowed. With one bit of the trek affectionately referred to by Kaluyalans as Suicide Hill, the hike is meant to act as an initial bonding session for all interns. It's kind of cool because we all hiked in together on like the first day. Our flights were the same day, so we came in together and now we live here as well together, which is special. That's Danielle Nair. She's one of the current interns at Kaluyala and helped us to see the community through her eyes. The realities of living and working outdoors at Kaluyala were sometimes inescapable. For instance, that annoying electronic-like buzzing sound that you can hear? Those are insects. Try to ignore them. That's what we did. It's nice to live here because being in an open air space is kind of cool. I really like that you can wake up in the morning and like see the sunrise, literally, and like you hear the rooster and you're already one with nature like as soon as your eyes open. It was clear from our arrival at Kaliyala that residents are one with nature because most of the buildings have no walls. The first thing you see when you get there are several structures, including living quarters, the kitchen, and other gathering spaces. They're built around a huge circle in the middle of which are rocking chairs surrounding a fire pit. This is the town square. It's amazingly picturesque. The idea that this quaint campsite was a town square seemed only a little more absurd than the fact that Kaluyala has a CEO. He's the founder, Jimmy Stice. So, I mean, we bought this land at the end of 2008, and then the whole world economy went into recession. When he says we, he means him and his dad. They're Americans from Atlanta, Georgia. Jimmy's dad was a partner in a real estate group that had planned for a more traditional development against the backdrop of the jungle. Then the economy tanked in the late 2000s, and with it went the dream of a jungle resort. But Jimmy had other ideas about how to develop the land. We started looking at real estate models and saw they really were broken. And so we came back and changed from a, if we build it, they will come, invest $30 million before anyone asks you to model, to a let's see who shows up and wants to build this place. Following this revelation, Jimmy says he decided to take the idea to a conference in Atlanta to see if people were actually interested in pursuing such a thing. As it turns out, a number of people were. He says some college students at the event came up to him and asked if they could work for him. They would go on to create Kaluyala's Research Institute. Now, saying you're going to build a new town, purchasing the land for it, 
and finding a couple of people to participate in such a venture is one thing. Actually going in and working the land into something livable? That's a different animal entirely. We moved into the valley in May of 2011 with a couple of shovels, a couple of buckets, a couple of tents, uh, and one old cranky land cruiser. And it rained like hell and tents flooded, and we were using buckets to go to the bathroom and putting it on the compost pile. And we were carrying 10-gallon jugs down from the spring and putting clean water tablets in it uh, to be able to drink. The group would eventually put up two wooden structures that served a double purpose. Primarily a way to get out of the rain, the two structures also acted as gathering spaces for everyone to hang out together outside of tents. Jimmy says that Kawiyala is an effort to show that it's possible to live in a social environment in a responsible way while still making economic sense. Here's how he does it. So there's four steps to doing that. One is we have a research institute driven by students who come down in a variety of disciplines from biology to agriculture to culinary to business uh, to research how would we create these socially and environmentally responsible systems. The second is that we have events in hospitality where we take that knowledge these students have generated and we turn it into three to four day programming for visitors to come experience it and take it home with them. And then we have a business incubator to create products and services that are socially and environmentally responsible to help us with our mission. And then the last thing we do is we build the real estate that we need in order for everybody to have a place to live, to do their studies, to visit, to prepare food. I always say real estate is the hardware of civilization and culture is the software we run on it. Beginning with those first two structures, Kaluyala gradually expanded. Then it started accelerating more. We got internet three years ago on a satellite, really slow, barely works with more than one person. And then about five months ago, we installed two high-speed transmitter towers on top of the mountains, and so now we have high-speed Wi-Fi. The camp also has limited electricity. It's only used in certain forms, like string lights in strategic places, or running the power saw to cut wood or out at the newly created Media Center, which houses a couple of power outlets for charging things like cell phones. However, it's most apparent in the outdoor kitchen, where instead of cooking like cowboys over an open fire, meals are prepared on industrial-sized ranges and in large ovens. About three years ago, we put in water piping all the way down here that goes to a slow sand filter that makes it where our water is 99% free of bacteria. We got a nurse for the first time a year ago, so it's, it's kind of moving along really quickly in terms of infrastructure. Kaluyala's physical framework isn't the only thing that is rapidly coming together. As the space grows, so too does the group of people who work, live, and learn there. After starting out with just a handful of folks, the valley now boasts well over 100 Kaluyalans, which includes student interns and staff. Interns stay in the valley for about 10 weeks. The faculty members, also known as program directors, stay longer. According to one of the program directors, their turnover rate is about two years. So if there are faculty and interns, there must be a curriculum, right? Actually, there are a variety. Agriculture, cooking, hands-on entrepreneurship, and more. Danielle is a media student intern. She's working on a podcast about Kaluyala but also participates in the design thinking program. It's about combining independent thinking and imagination with practical and technical skills while considering the nature of today's design practices. So you could say that ideas like more efficient use of space are things that she studies. Something we talk about a lot with design thinking is like exporting things from your home that you don't necessarily need and that can be shared spaces. So like dining spaces and like bathroom spaces, things like that. 
that, you know, as long as you have privacy maintained and some other things, like, it, it can be a comfortable living space. And it's very humbling because it shows you that, like, you don't need so much in your personal space. Like, I went home for uh, Inspiration Week, which is, like, our spring break, basically. Um, and I have my own room, and, like, it's so spacious. And I was like, this is just so not what I'm used to. Danielle said after living in the rancho and returning home, she realized how much space she didn't need to live. Alyssa, Katie, and I were going to be there for just two nights, so we get the accelerated course on confined living quarters. But first, we had another problem to deal with. Alyssa and I weren't the first journalists to visit Kaluyala. Just weeks before we arrived, a crew for Viceland, the TV channel for Vice Media, had just wrapped up its taping of Jungle Town. It's a documentary television series detailing life at Kaluyala. Some of the Kaluyalans told Alyssa that they were disappointed when they saw the trailer. A lot of people were saying that they sensationalized um, their living situation. They said that they made it dramatic, they made it seem like it was a reality show, and they didn't like that because it wasn't a true depiction of who they were and what they are doing here. I guess it was still some bad blood from people with cameras. Since they were still resentful of how Viceland had portrayed them, they weren't particularly happy to see another camera crew. As a journalist, you're in that tough spot where you want to get your story done, get the camera in people's face and get what you need. But at the same time, you want to be respectful of others and their lives because this, this is their home. We went to breakfast yesterday and I was like, oh, I'm just going to get some video of the people, you know, cooking. And one of the cooks, she asked me, well, who are you? And I was just like, oh, I'm Alyssa. I go to Penn State. And then our host, Marie, kind of talked to me and said, you know, you have to ask people that's really important if you want to record them because it's their personal lives and you can't just have the camera in their face. And she was like, if you don't ask them, it becomes a problem, then you can just put the camera away. So that was like a wake-up call for me, like get more personable with everybody. Don't make it just seem like you're here to, you know, put the camera in their face. Alyssa tried to combat negative attitudes about media by explaining that she's a journalism student doing a hard news story, not a dramatized version of Survivor. Once that was established, people were much more open to being recorded. Even with that hurdle surpassed, however, we still had other things to worry about. It has been a workout. Lugging the tripod, lugging the camera, and then you've got to make sure the camera's level, and then lifting the tripod, going up and down the hills, and then, wait, did I white balance? Wait, did I critical focus? There's also a lot going on around you so I'll be recording one thing or on my way to one place and then something will catch my eye like I'll see a sloth and it's like wait and you know I got to turn the camera around really fast to catch everything because there's just so much going on here it's like I'm trying to conserve the space and memory on my camera to make sure I get it all. It was hard work for sure and with all the heat and humidity of the jungle we understood why Kaluyalans are ready for bed when the sun goes down. Alyssa, Katie, and I each had our own tent that came equipped with a blow-up bed pillows, and sheets. Our tents were on raised wooden platforms amongst the tents of other visitors and the camp faculty. Not exactly roughing it, which I was pleasantly surprised about. Another path off of Town Square leads to the camp's bathroom area. Separated by gender, it's got everything one could need. Compost toilets, sinks, and shower stalls. We learned two special notes about the bathrooms during our stay. The system here with the bathrooms is, if it's yellow, let it mellow, just let it sit. If it's brown, flush it down. That's one way they save energy. The other has to do with the showers. The water comes from the Rio, the river, 
I took a shower. The water was a bit chilly, but honestly, it's kind of like warm out here. So it felt good and it felt refreshing. The water temperature and pressure of the outdoor showers are wholly controlled by Mother Earth. If the sun beats down hard enough during the day to warm the underground pipes, congratulations, you get a warm shower. Otherwise, not so much. But a shower is better than no shower. The intern's sleeping quarters setup was not as cushy as ours. They sleep in designated buildings surrounding town square. Selected on a first-come, first-served basis as they arrive on their first day, they can choose to reside in one of the buildings, called ranchos, or in Hammocktown. Ranchos are basically these two-story wooden structures with either tin or thatched roofs. They have no walls, and you use what is essentially a leaning ladder to get to the second story. The first floor of the residential ranchos have dirt floors and are used as classrooms, storage for building materials, or general gathering spaces. Up on the second floor is where people sleep on twin-air mattresses and hang their belongings from the rafters. Some have white sheets strung across the sides to act as privacy curtains. Hammocktown is on the first floor of one special rancho. Like all the others, it has a dirt floor. People string up their hammocks side by side with little space in between and hang up their belongings or leave them on the ground. So we have five girls in the rancho. This is like the, the girls' rancho. That's Danielle again. When I tell my friends at home I sleep on an air mattress with the, in a house with no walls, they're like, what are you talking about? You know, like, what does that mean? Like, come home. But it's, it's cool. Speaking of no walls, when I asked one of the interns what happens to them in the ranchos when it rains, she responded, you get wet. That kind of carefree attitude is necessary out in the jungle when you're at the mercy of Mother Nature. Being in an open air space is kind of cool. It's something that like you might not be used to when first coming here, like the winds at night are sometimes so crazy that it wakes you up, but it really is, it's not so bad. I don't mind it. She's not kidding about the wind. Even in the relative safety of my tent, I couldn't escape it or the rain that came with. Neither could Alyssa. The rain was my alarm. Gosh, the rain is what woke me up. I too was woken up both nights during my stay by the nylon walls harshly billowing in and out with no reprieve. One minute, it was silent. Or at least as silent as the jungle gets at night, teeming with creatures scurrying between raindrops. The next minute, it was utter chaos outside. For all that noise with the high potential to wake people up at night, we were still somehow greeted in the morning to the most peaceful soundtrack ever. It was almost as if it was nature's way of apologizing for her behavior the night before. On the Kaliala website, visitors are told that the valley is located at the perfect altitude, where temperatures reach 84 degrees every afternoon and cool to 68 degrees every night. The days are beautiful, with plenty of sunshine interrupted by intermittent rain showers multiple times a day, dancing between drizzling and outright storms. Alyssa and I frequently found ourselves ducking under the shelter of ranchos to protect the camera equipment from the water. As the interns say, though, just dry yourself off and keep it moving. Alyssa kept it moving all right, collecting more video and stories than she'd ever be able to squeeze into the four or five minute piece she planned to make. Everyone here that I've spoken to has had just an amazing background story and they're just innovative young people who want to make a difference here. Plans are underway for large scale projects. A zip line through the jungle, a rum distillery. 
but there are plenty of smaller enterprises already in the works. Students are making their own business where they have like these cup holders made out of bamboo that they gather from the land and they put like bottles in it. The idea is to put glass bottles, beer or otherwise, in the bamboo and then slide the whole contraption into a perfectly sized woven sack made out of reused plastic bags. Pretty cool stuff. For a group of people ranging from about 19 to their late 20s, a group that is often touted as lazy or too technologically focused by society, it was kind of inspiring to see them out in the jungle making something out of nothing. CEO Jimmy Stice would tell you that the creative energy here is part of the plan. When you really bring out individual strengths from the bottom up and you help people learn how to work within a large group in a complicated situation to add value using their own strengths, it makes it to where we don't end up with this codependence that we're seeing in a lot of the world in terms of business and politics right now. Jimmy recruited the original settlers of Kaluyala from his hometown of Atlanta. Today, residents are from more places than ever before. Places like... Lewisburg, PA. I was born in Auckland, New Zealand, but I live in Sydney. <laughs> Sydney, Australia. Montreal, Canada. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. South Texas. Dallas, Texas. Mess, France. Durham, New Hampshire. I'm from Queens, New York. Pretty cool, right? Still, for all of that geographical diversity, one intern told me that some of them joke that Kaluyala is a gringo town due to its lack of people of color. And for a place that's located in Panama, I did find it odd that I saw less than five Panamanians at camp during my time there. The question I heard brought up again and again was, are we pioneers or are we colonists? Danielle says she's looking forward to a stronger connection between Kaluyala and the greater community beyond the valley. I'm very interested to see how, in future terms, we learn to integrate culture, Panamanian culture, more. Um, one of my things that I'm really interested in is like Panamanian women, like my independent project. It's a photojournalism series on Panamanian women from San Miguel, and they're so incredible. Just like the things they do, they blow my mind. Like speaking with them is like always emotional because they have these crazy stories of strength. Another intern is using her independent project to create a women's center for the town of San Miguel. Each successful project brings Jimmy closer to realizing the dream that gave birth to Kaluyala. We started this more as a social project and we just knew that human beings need the environment in order to survive. And that's kind of where the environmentalism kicked in. To be sustainable while living on unsustainable systems is really, really hard. To build sustainable infrastructure, they figured it out 12,000 years ago and we're figuring out again. As serene as Kaluyala may seem so far, you should know that it's no utopia. Just as humans need the environment to survive, a business needs money to keep it running. Where does the money come from in this case? The interns. All interns attending Kaluyala pay tuition. With the camp constantly gaining popularity and the operation presumably growing in size, the cost of the Kaluyala experience rises each year. For fall 2017, the price tag hits just under seven grand for 10 weeks in the jungle. In spring 2018 and beyond, that number jumps to $7,500. With at least 50 interns coming in each semester, those funds tend to add up. The Kaluyala website says, quote, All tuition goes directly back into the Institute and its amazing staff, our students' facilities and research, 
and everything we can do to make Kalayala a more amazing place and experience. End quote. While you're there, it certainly doesn't look like a nearly half a million dollar enterprise, but maybe that's part of the charm. So, let's say you're an undergraduate intern. You've got to pay for a flight to and from Panama, your regular university tuition if you plan on getting credit for the experience, Kaluyala's tuition, and whatever other spending money that's needed when leaving camp. For all of your investment, not just money-wise, but time-wise as well, you'd probably want the claims that are made on the website to be true, right? For the reality of the place to match the sunshiny and lush-looking Instagrams you've been looking at for months? Well, you'd certainly be rewarded in some aspects. Others? Only somewhat. For example, though it's described as the world's most sustainable town, Kaluyala is not there yet. They still produce a decent amount of trash, though they try to recycle as much of it as possible. And while we were there, we're still working through the kinks of a fully closed-loop compost system. In addition, though some food is grown on-site in a small garden, much of what Kaluyalans eat is brought to camp from elsewhere in Panama. And compared to the amount of people who live there, it's definitely not in abundance. The food is delicious. The chefs are incredible. They work so hard. I think that like the barrier that we run in with is like food portion sizing because you know like we're used to huge meals at home. Most people here are American and you come here and it's like you have your dish and then leftovers or seconds rather and it's amazing but sometimes you run into problems with like sustaining yourself through the day. The heat here is insane. We do a lot of manual labor as well depending on the program so it does become difficult to make that food stretch out till the next meal. Danielle says the staff has introduced snack time, which helps, but everyone is definitely still hungry for each meal. Also, the second helpings she mentioned are not guaranteed. While we were there, people would linger around the kitchen like hawks after first helpings were served, waiting for the second round to be announced. Then they would race to get in line because there's never enough seconds to go around. I definitely felt this while there. One night, we had a delicious dinner of grape tomatoes, noodles, peppers, onions, sausage, greens, and Parmesan cheese with a side of bread. It was so tasty, especially after running around all day. When it was time for seconds, I decided to jump in. Ending up at the back of the line, by the time I reached the front, there were roughly five grape tomatoes left, half a scoop of noodles, and a dusting of cheese. Disappointed doesn't even begin to describe how I felt in that moment. And if you're wondering, no, they don't do dessert in the valley. Aside from running for your food, unless you have a dietary restriction, there's no room for picky eaters at the camp. Because of the nature of communal living, the chefs have one meal on the menu. They make what they make, and that's it. If you don't like a particular thing, you'd better have snacks ready in your rancho, because this is no restaurant. Usually a picky eater myself, I found that there was no time to hem and haw over what's being served. By the time a meal is announced, you're so excited to eat, you jump right in. With that being said, I have to mention that, sustainable or not, and something I would never order in America or not, the food there was amazing for the most part. The chefs are really invested in making things that taste good. They just need to make more of it. Portion sizes aren't the only thing Kalayalans have to criticize. For all that their surroundings may be tranquil, their interpersonal relationships aren't always so amicable. There are questions about their purpose at Kaluyala, if the work they're doing will have any tangible outcome, and, as always, good old relationship drama. As a group of young, mostly unattached people, there is an almost palpable hookup culture present in the valley. 
between the interns themselves and sometimes the staff. While any problems that may arise in that particular arena are dealt with on a personal basis, all other grievances interns may have are discussed in the routine fireside chats. They take place with all interns present, gathered around, what else, but the fire pit in the center of town square. No staff, including Jimmy, are allowed to participate so that everyone may speak freely. After an attempt at a resolution is made, only then is the problem brought to the staff. It's their way of avoiding the codependence Jimmy mentioned earlier. I'm sure by now you've formed an opinion on whether or not you could complete 10 weeks at Kaliyala. I asked Alyssa to consider the same thing. 10 weeks? Honestly, I mean, if I, if I had to, yes. But I think if you want to stay here for 10 weeks, your heart has to be in it. You know, it has to be something you want to do. You have to have the right mindset to be here. Then she changed her mind. For me, um, I guess I would say, I don't know. I'm not sure. Um, I would have to see where my mindset is and if I really wanted to be here. Later, as we left Kaluyala, she would give me her final answer. A resounding no. I would agree with her. If forced, I could totally do it. But would I choose the experience of my own accord? Probably not. Personally, I'd need to see more coming out of it in favor of the Panamanian people and more integration of Panamanian culture into the experience. It's the cry of the 21st century, but I'd also like to see more diversity in the intern groups before I would consider being a part of one. Nonetheless, waking up to bird sounds that reminded me of being home in Pennsylvania, but 10 times louder, was something I could definitely get used to. Not to mention how friendly many of the Kaliyalans were. Everyone would say hello in passing, or actually introduce themselves and inquire about what we were doing there, which is always nice. I'm a bit removed from the experience now and have had time to reflect on the bigger picture, but I made some observations about Kaluyala life while actually there in my tent one night. Here are a few of them, jungle night sounds and all. Everybody keeps um, using the term, you know, to become one with nature, but even though it's cliche, it is kind of true. Like there are things here that at home I would be freaking out about. Um, for example, at breakfast, Katie was saying that she saw, you know, some ants on her plate and she just kind of shooed them off and kept eating. But if, you know, she were at home or like at a restaurant, you know, in America, that would never fly. No pun intended. But here, it's just kind of like, all right, well, we're all living together. and We just have to kind of make it work. This idea of we're all just living together mimics the broader communal style of life at Kalayala in general. A style that I learned can be exhausting. You really do get tired. One thing that they did mention a lot was um, the importance that you kind of find your time to be alone and your space to be alone it makes a significant difference when you get you know a minute to yourself versus when you don't. Thinking back, this is 100% something I would need to consider. Besides the sun and the work being draining, interacting with other people constantly can be a lot. Having that private tent after a long day in the valley was essential. The interns don't get that. Which could have been a problem had I actually been a Kaluyala intern. And one last thing. So we're out here in the middle of nowhere and, uh, 
you know, there's people all around you, so you don't feel like you're missing civilization. But as far as people from outside the camp, you know, there's not really any of that. You don't see that. However, every couple of hours, you'll hear and then see a plane flying overhead of the entire camp. Obviously, when you're looking out from a plane, if you're far up enough, you might see the veins of a city, plains, or mountains, or something like that. But you can't, if you're so high up, you can't see detail. And so these planes that are going overhead, I'm wondering if they can actually see that there's a settlement here. Because I think that's so interesting that we're so far out, we're kind of far up as well. And there's this whole town here. I use that word generously. And there's over 100 people living and working here. And yet here are these planes flying overhead that have no idea what's going on. It's amazing. It's kind of scary. And I also feel like it's a metaphor for something because even with like journalism every day, you're working on a different story to get it out into the world. But there's always a hundred more or a thousand more stories to be told that you walk past and have no clue are even there. And I think that's that's what makes it all the more important to always seek out people and talk to people and just kind of learn what they're about because they might have a story that's very valuable for others to hear and for them to tell. That's what I think I'm taking away from this little trip to Kaluyala. All right, good night. far on this audio journey, I've told you all about my classmates' stories and how we navigated this course and Panama while thinking like international reporters. Serious, focused, and full of questions. But despite Tony's insistence that this trip would not be a vacation, I can assure you that we all found time to have fun. Guys, yeah, we have right there. Oh, oh, right here. Oh. Is this the bar? This is it. Yeah. Oh. oh, yes. We had no idea what we would get into that first night out but it definitely changed the tone of our week in Panama for the better. Find out how we managed to get an end-of-college-worthy last spring break out of a serious class trip next time on Panama.